I don't know if you remember the film The Matrix, which, believe it or not, must be 25 to 30 years old now. It came out in the 90s. But when it did, it was an absolute gift to every youth worker of every church. Because for a wee while, every youth meeting on a Friday or Saturday night was based on The Matrix. And occasionally there'd be one in a sermon as well. Because the idea was that this hero, Neil, was being offered a red pill or a blue pill. That everything he could see was just an illusion. It was all part of a clever plot by these robots that were controlling them. So he was living in an imaginary world. But if he took the right pill, he could actually leave the illusion behind and enter in the real world and see things for what they really were. Now, the film, of course, is based because Neil did choose to take the pill and see the world as it really was and then take on the machines and try and free all humanity. Uh, at that point, it becomes science fiction and is less used to us. But in today's passage, this is what Jesus is doing for us. He wants us to see beyond the veil, to see beyond just that which is physical. Now, it's not, unlike the film The Matrix, it's not that the physical world isn't real. This is very real. These are real chairs. You and I are real people. This is a real world. We're not living in an illusion. Our physicality is very real. But how we see things, how we understand, how we perceive, those things that we think are important and those things that don't matter, those things that are just for now and those things that are eternal, our desires, our decisions, well, they're all based on how we see. And ultimately, we're not asked to take a pill. We're asked to believe Jesus. Do we trust him? Not do we understand everything he says. For in this passage, he keeps talking about him and his father as if they're separate, but at the same time, they're one. And I'll avoid going into Trinitarian theology and just remember, I believe him. I don't understand completely, but I believe him. And if we trust him, and if we listen to what he has to say, we will start to see a much bigger picture than that that's just immediately before our eyes. And so on this last day of tabernacles, when he's still in the woman's court, having had the woman from adultery brought before him and gone, during that Feast of Tabernacles, there are four large candles around the court that are extinguished on the last day. And as they're being extinguished, Jesus is standing up and saying, I am the light of the world. Not just the light of those there, not just the light of the Jews or even of you and me, but the light of the world that anyone who comes to him will have eternal life. The Feast of the Tabernacles, if you remember, this was very much about going from that which is temporary to that which is permanent. It was a time when they remembered their wilderness wanderings. Jesus had freed them from slavery in Egypt. This is what's so bizarre that halfway through they protest and say to Jesus, we have never been slaves. Well, what's the whole Feast of Tabernacles been about? If they've never been slaves, why are they celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles and being freed from slavery in Egypt? It's amazing how quickly you can forget your own past. You remember the blessings and the glory of where we are now and then look around the world as if, of course, we've never been there too. But during the, that week, they live in tents. They sleep and should be able to see through the roof. They remember that that was only temporary. 
And they celebrate that they now have a permanent home. Earlier in John 7, we reflected briefly when Jesus said to them not to judge by appearances, but again to look beyond what can be physically seen. And at the same time in the Holy of the Holies, behind the veil that only the high priest would enter, there is one candle, one menorah that lights the entire room. But not hidden behind the veil, but where out in the open, in the court for all to see is Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Not secretly, not hidden away, not like some mystery that has to be discovered or solved, but there for all to see. For some, the wilderness wanderings is how they see our Christian life just now. We have been freed from slavery and sin, but we are yet to enter into our eternal home. And these are our wilderness wanderings in between. It's an interesting motif that you can think about later. In Romans, we read this, Paul writes, But the righteousness that comes from faith says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend to the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. Sorry. It's on your lips and in your heart. This is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if we confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says that no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I believe when Paul was writing this passage in Romans, it's this chapter in John that we're considering today that he had in his mind as he wrote it. Jesus is out in the open. He's there for all to see. He wants to be found. Now the Pharisees challenge him. How can he testify of himself? I mean, didn't Jesus himself say earlier in John chapter 5, if I testify testify about myself, my testimony is not true? They've caught him out. Wait a minute, have you not contradicted yourself? But if you read the passage in John 5 in full, it says this. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mentioned it to you that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice or seen his form. Nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And Jesus here in chapter 8 is repeating himself. He again appeals to the testimony of the Father. The testimony of John the Baptist, of the word of God, of the very acts that they have seen him doing. He's making clear they have no excuse not to see, except that they refuse to see. 
They also confuse the requirements of a law court with that which is true. For example, and I don't know if an osprey can do this, but imagine I was out on my own in the hills and a giant osprey came down and grabbed an entire deer and flew away with it. And I came and told you all about it. Well, either you believe me or not, but if for some reason it became a test of character that somehow I had to prove it, well, I couldn't. I couldn't ever prove what I saw when I was on my own. It wouldn't stand up in a court of law. But it doesn't mean it's not true. Jesus is the Son of God, whether one person says it or a thousand people say it. It is true. Whether it would stand up in a court of law or not does not change that fact. But the Pharisees think they found a chink in his argument. For who is his father? Who should believe his testimony? Now this is where Jesus' human background gets thrown up. Later on in the chapter, they do make the statement to him and elsewhere in the Gospels as well. They say, we're not born of sexual immorality. You know, an allusion to you were born of Joseph and you were born out of wedlock. Don't turn to us and start speaking to us about who our father is. And this is one of those places where who we are in Christ changes how we read this. For we believe that Jesus is the son of God and not the son of Joseph. But I doubt that's why you came to faith in the first place. That's something we believe once we got to know Jesus. Once we got to know Jesus, once we learned to trust him and trust the word of God, then we believed he was the son of God and not the son of Joseph. Before we knew the Lord, I doubt we really cared. But this is how we know Jesus shapes how we read his scripture. It shapes what we believe and those things we are willing to accept and trust. They carry on. They say, but aren't you a Samaritan? Aren't you demon-possessed? And they start throwing all sorts of accusations against him. Why would they accuse him of being a Samaritan? As we read the scriptures, he's quite clearly Jewish. All I could think of is, if you remember, Jesus spoke to the Samaritan at the well, the, good, the, the woman at the well who was a Samaritan. He gave the parable of the good Samaritan. He talks positively about Samaritans. He speaks with them. He eats with them. He seems to make friends with them. He travels through Samaria. Well, no self-respecting Jew would have ever done that. So possibly, possibly he's just deceived them all and he's really a Samaritan come to deceive them. Why demon-possessed? Well, they can't deny the miracles he's done. He really did feed 5,000 people. He really has raised the dead. He really did give the blind their sight and help the deaf to hear. They only have one of two options then because no human being can do that. You can't do it. I can't do it. So either he can do it because God has given him the ability to do it, in which case he is of God and they need to listen to what he says. They don't want to hear what he says. So their only option is to believe it must be because it's a demon or a devil. It's scary the lengths they will go to to not accept him, to refuse to believe what he's saying, to refuse to see him for who he really is, that they would rather accuse him of being a devil or a demon than maybe just stop for a moment and think, wait a minute, I don't understand something here, but he's given me something to think about. And Jesus makes it very clear who he's claiming to be. For when Jesus says that before Abraham was born, I am, it's not a grammatical error. 
He's using the very name that God used of himself when he revealed himself to Moses and said, and Moses asked him, who do you say you are? And God says, I am who I am. Jesus and the Pharisees switched between physical parentage and spiritual parentage. To be accused of being children of the devil is not to mince your words. They've accused him of having a demon. He's accused them of being children of the devil. They've both accused each other of being born of sexual immorality. This is not a pleasant conversation. Jesus is not speaking subtly. He's being quite blunt. And they're being harsh in return. Who is your father? Often when we get together as families, some of our relatives will come up to us and say, there is no denying who you are. You are just like. And often they're looking at your looks. But sometimes it can be a turn of phrase. The way you say something, sort of mannerisms or characteristics. It's bizarre sometimes what we pick up from our parents without even realizing. Mo's mum's a bit of a hoarder. Mo could be a bit of a hoarder. And she knows this. And I've seen the TV shows, and they always make out that it's some, because of some traumatic experience in the past, therefore people don't want to lose things. Peter, if he go to throw something out, will reduce to tears. And I know toy, children don't like having toys thrown out, but he tore a pair of trousers during the week, and he wanted us to make sure we bought ones exactly the same. We have a lovely new sofa, but he wants to make sure we've got a picture of the old one. Peter's not had a traumatic life experience. Where's this come from? At which point we say, you're just like your mum. How? Why? Where is this? So we, it's just not the physical qualities. We inherit other qualities too. So how do we know if we're of our Heavenly Father? Or if we're a slave to sin? Well, we need to trust God. What character and nature have we taken on? And actually, what is the character and nature of the God that we choose to worship? Well, this is where it helps because Jesus says clearly to know him is to know our, our heavenly father. If we want to know what God is like, we look to see what Jesus is like. For if Jesus is doing and saying those things that please his father and he is living to please his father, then what he does is reveal the heart of the father to us. I know that for some of us here, when we talk of a father, your experience and my experience and others' experience of fathers have not always been a positive one. Our human fathers failed. I stand here as a father who has failed. So it helps to know, well, what does this passage tell us when we talk about a heavenly father? This is what God means when he calls himself Father. We read firstly that our Heavenly Father testifies of Jesus. He publicly speaks well of his own Son. He publicly praises him. He did this at his baptism at the Mount of Transfiguration. God the Father publicly declared that he was pleased with him. He loves to see Jesus. He loves to say, encourage him to say things that are good. And he's instructed us to listen to him. Jesus' desire is to please his father and as such does what pleases him. He repeats what his father tells him. God the father glorifies his son. This is the sign of a good parent, the sign of a good father. That in public he testifies and says, 
Look at my son. Look how great he is. Listen to him. Do what he says. I love my child. Not hidden behind a door. When we talk of our Heavenly Father, this is what we mean. The relationship between God the Father and God the Son is as if and is they are the one and same person. This is a closeness beyond our comprehension. And without slipping into Trinitarian theology, this is where we say, I believe. So what does Jesus reveal to us about a Heavenly Father? And this is what he says. Earlier on I said how we relate to Christ will shape how we read our scriptures, how we see the world around us. And in the middle of this chapter, Jesus states that those who are his disciples are those who keep his teachings, who abide in his word. Jesus did everything to please his father. Yet this chapter began with a woman caught in adultery. The word of God says that she should be put to death, but Jesus did not condemn her. The desire of God is not that we are condemned. Yes, that we are convicted of sin and come to repentance. The desire of God is that we should be saved. And yes, by the law we find that we are all sinners and deserving of death. But Christ has taken that death for us. So that we can repent and enter into a true relationship with him. We can be freed from the slavery of sin to enter into the freedom of life with our Heavenly Father. And this is why Jesus says to them, he says, when you see me lifted up, then you will know who I am. The fruit of the Pharisees' actions led to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The fruit of Jesus' actions was led to his personal sacrifice for our benefit. Look at what happened. Jesus' actions led to a life-giving sacrifice. And although we rejoice and celebrate that Christ has risen from the dead, it was when he willingly sacrificed himself for us that we got to see his and our Heavenly Father's true heart as one who would give up their life willingly for us when he died for you and for me. That's the fruit. That's how we know his heart. We are his disciples if we keep his word, if we abide in his teachings, if we live to please him. If it is our desire to see life lived to its fullest and by his spirit at work in us and through us to bring life and light into the world around us so that those around us may see light. Did you notice he called John the Baptist a lamp? Lamps carry the light. I like that idea. That we would do that which pleases him. Then we are being his disciples. That we are no longer slaves, we are free. We've been called just to believe. We are now heirs, children of God, thanks to him. Amen.